With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vicini. We are presented by The Athletic. Today on the show, Mark Schindler is in the building. And we're diving deep into swing skills across the NBA. And we'll dive into what that means in a second here. But Mark, what's going on, buddy? How you doing? Honestly, man, really tired. It's been, uh, I think, what is it, Wednesday? <laughs> it's been a long week. Yeah. Uh, but it's going good, man. I can't complain. I have uh, got a lot of games to watch tonight. And I'm looking forward to getting to. I'm looking forward to talking. How's everything on your end, man? Everything's good, man. I watched the Kansas State-Kansas game from last night earlier this morning Very which was fun. really really fun really really fun game uh we haven't talked about grady dick yet i guess he's an interesting one that i continue to come back to uh if only because i think the defense is getting better i, I have like real worries that teams are just gonna hunt him constantly in the nba because he's like the skinny white guy and i think he mm-hmm. needs a lot of strength but he's getting better like from game one to game 17 his defense has improved so, so, so drastically that uh, I think he deserves a lot of credit for it. It's kind of funny. Ironically, like I had to dip with about five minutes left in regulation yesterday to go do other work stuff. But I thought as much as it, I mean, process-wise, I thought the, the he had a good offensive game. Um, obviously, the shots didn't fall. But exactly like you mentioned, I think it's, it's interesting because a lot of his uh, – plays come from from good hands like he'll get stops because he's getting beat and then he just has really good hand timing um i do think he's been a bit better with just positioning and everything in general so i agree like i felt yesterday was um an encouraging defensive game compared to what it had been you know a month ago yeah he's had a few moments like that i think Mm -hmm. where he's actually been like pretty okay uh i I think that like with him even more than just like flat on ball defense like He's so big in college that, like, I think he's pretty okay there for the most part. It's more that, like, he doesn't really communicate well, it feels. There's, like, something going on with communication when he's involved in, like, tough actions to deal with where I think he gets, like, a little bit lost a little bit too often. Mm -hmm. And, like, you see it in, like, some screen exchanges. You see it in, like... You know, they're trying to communicate an off-ball switch and he'll kind of get lost for a second and the team will take advantage of it. But like there's enough there. Like I think that like his recovery time, like I think that his some of his rotational stuff has been really good. He takes charges, obviously. Six foot eight white guy, you know, elite level shooter. Of course he takes charges. Uh he's he's really, really interesting as a defender now in a way that is that's curious to me. Because if he can defend, he's an awesome, awesome, like probably a top nine prospect in this class. I'm still a little bit questionable. I think he will probably get hunted a little bit in the NBA to an extent, but this is not Duncan Robinson by any stretch, which is the important thing. Like he is not someone that's going to be incapable of being out there defensively. Uh, He does compete. He is big. He's strong. 
Speaking of six foot eight white guys who can defend, uh, Tyler Hansborough on Twitter after uh, after John Wall's comments on uh, on Eo oh, pod, Tyler oh, Hansborough no. was like tweeting fake news on Twitter, which the the last thing you absolutely expect. So good times, man. Well, we we live in a we live in a very interesting time with respect to basketball. Yeah, this this was a big basketball podcast, uh, like former NBA players or current NBA players podcast day. Because there was the awesome JJ Reddick clip of him explaining making 342 shots every single day, basically. Um, and like what his schedule was and how he had his schedule down to the minute, uh, by the end of his career, like every single day. Um, I thought that that clip was amazing. And then we had the John Wall clip. We had John Wall just like taking straight shots at Justin Patton. (laughs) Yeah. Felt bad for oh him. Oh my goodness! Yeah. I felt bad too. But we had like another set of circumstances where another current NBA guard is talking about the Houston Rockets and taking shots at Kevin Porter Jr. and Jalen Green in terms of the way that they play, which felt no that that felt like the most notable thing to me that happened within that John Wall thing was just like you know pointing out again for everybody that the way that Kevin Porter and Jalen Green play is just, like, not good. Like, J- Jalen Green, oh, man. I-, I have some, like, real worries about him and some of the habits he's building defensively. He, he has been atrocious defensively this season. Like, look, I've been clear. I don't really want to talk about Alper and Shengun, but, like, I've been clear about my concerns about Alper and Shengun. I think Jalen Green is, like, a worse individual defender than Alper and Shengun right now. And I, I have more structural concerns about Shangun defensively because of the middle. Uh, he's like the centerpiece of defense being the center. He's a much more important positional defender. But if we're comparing like one-to-one right now in terms of like defense, defensive ability, like defensive willingness, Jalen Green's way worse. And, and it's very frustrating. And I have a lot of concerns right now. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, it's, it is not good. It is uh you could actually quite quite say it's bad. Uh very bad. Um the off ball stuff, exactly like you mentioned. I mean, uh I was watching the Lakers game this morning, and so it's not to just reduce it down to one game, but I mean, he's flying close out, uh jumping before he even shoots against Troy Brown. Uh like that that's exa- I mean, exactly like you're talking about, like that stuff where on the scout should not be happening. Um and then it's like, okay, well, then there's not the recovery. Like he stops and watches a lot of times after he he makes the closeout. Like there's a lot of stuff I agree that really needs to be cleaned up there. Yeah. Um, but let's let's not talk about the Rockets because I've done that enough. Uh I did it on the last podcast with Andrew Schlecht, and I feel like we did it a little bit last week as well. Let's talk about swing skills. So the concept of today's podcast was I just went to Mark and I was like, you know, it'd be a really fun show if we talked about what are the biggest skills where if one guy on a team could do something that he's currently not doing from a skill set perspective and currently maybe can't do from a skill set perspective, but has potential to do down the road, how would that shift the NBA title race basically? Or could that shift the NBA title race basically? So the idea here is like, you know, the the obvious one that I'm going to talk about at the top is like, what if Zion Williamson could knock down a standstill catch and shoot three and teams had to close out on him at a reasonable level. Like, that would completely alter the NBA title race, in my opinion. Um, you know, so basically what we did here is 
Mark has three guys in three skill sets that we're going to talk about. I have three guys in three skill sets that we're going to talk about. I went more on like the superstar, potential superstar side. Mark went more, more on the role player side. I think it's fair to say, right? Yeah. Yeah. More like secondary guy. Um, yeah. You know, as you know, that's where I tend to go, but, uh, but no, yeah. no, no, no. I'm, I'm really glad you did it. Like I'm not, I'm not complaining. I think it's a fantastic thing that you did that. No, I know you're good. I'm just, I'm just, I'm yeah. saying it. You know, I, I am, uh, if nothing, a uh, caricature of myself. So, yeah. So I, I can't, knowing you, I kind of was hoping you would do that, uh, when you did that. So I kind of came up with like three very, very high end things that I thought would change. And a lot of mine are shooting related and a lot of yours are non shooting related, which is really, really fun and really, uh, I'm glad that we balanced each other in this, Mark. This was this was really good, I think. Me as well. Yeah, I'm excited to get into this one. Okay, so we'll go back and forth. And the first one I'll start with is that idea that if Zion Williamson could shoot and can learn to shoot over the next little while, not even this year, into the summer, into the next summer, maybe by 2025, if Zion Williamson can learn to shoot just like a spot three, it completely changes the trajectory of the New Orleans Pelicans in terms of the way they can space the floor, in terms of maybe the way that Brandon Ingram and Zion Williamson can work together, uh, in terms of maybe playing Zion more consistently with a center out on the court, like a Jonas Valanciunas in playoff settings. I really love the way that the Pelicans just kind of bully and bludgeon people inside, it feels like, a lot of the time. But Zion Williamson being able to just, like, I'm not even saying, like, knock down, like, three threes a game, take nine of them a game. I'm saying like if he could take legitimately three of them a game and knock down, you know, 37% of them because he's open and then forces teams to close out on him at a reasonable level, the shape of the Pelicans offense given the presence of C.J. McCollum, given the presence of Brandon Ingram, both of whom can really, really create, if teams have to, like, pay attention to Zion out there when he's on that opposite side, it would, like, really drastically kind of change everything in terms of how they operate. Yeah, no, I think that's a really interesting point, Um, especially, too, with, like, they always – I mean, the, the the rest of the shooting around him is so good, too. Like, obviously, Herb has re- reduced a little bit this year, and I think he still does positive things that they have worked to to get back in. Um, yeah, and, like, that, by the way, like, another guy like that is Najee Marshall, right? Like, Najee is a little bit better of a shooter, I think, than Herb is and gets treated a little bit more as a shooter. But Najee's another guy that, like, they need to have out there because he does so many other little things. And if they could have another shooter, it'd be really, really helpful to get Najee on the court. It's just fun to think about, too, because I think you would see a lot. Not that there – I mean, there's already a ton of opportunities, but even more opportunities for, like, Zion to attack off the catch in the slot and stuff like that, which to me, like, that's the kind of stuff where, exactly like you're mentioning, like, I've talked at length about how lethal somebody like Harrison Barnes can be attacking off the catch in in the slot because he's long and he has good footwork and he's really strong. Um, like it's, it hasn't hit the same this year, but like, even just like looking at last year, I think his drives per game were the highest that they'd been in his career. And, um, for like the first 30 or 40 games, he was, I think he was averaging a career high in foul rate. It, it absolutely falls off a little bit, but like point being, we're, if we're talking about that with Harrison Barnes, that's a very different story with Zion Williamson. Like yep. 
because then I think you put a really interesting bind on it. I think it's less about being worried about the shot because obviously, like, you don't want him to hit the shot if he's shooting 37%, but it's more you have to at least just like contemplate it. And it's like, okay, do we have somebody press up on Zion and try and just like not give him opportunities to attack off the catch? But then does that open us up to, okay, well, what if they just have off ball screening actions happen and we have to figure yep. that out? And then it just gives you a, even more of a headache. So I think it's interesting. I think. I would even take it a step further. I think Zion, not that like he obviously has like really good touch within like 10, 12 feet. If he had like a pull up 16 footer, like obviously yeah. it's, that's not everything, but I think, and it's something that I've fought people on a lot with, with Giannis. Like a lot of people say like, oh, well, you know, you should just take a three instead of taking the 16 footer. And it's, it's like, it's not even about it. Like Giannis last year, obviously his finishing has, has tanked a little bit this season compared to where it was. Um, but last year he hit a threshold with where his pull up two was at, um, where his post game was at, his, his post fade. Um, that defenders legitimately had to check him, like it was at a level where it's like, okay, we can't just let him take these because he's too good at them. And it's yeah. also at the point of like, okay, if somebody's hitting something right in your face, it's really hard as a defender to just keep letting it happen. But then that opens up even more so of stuff where, yeah, it's not the quote unquote like line drive from 25 feet out, but okay, when Giannis has gotten to the point where he's so coordinated and fluid and strong, when he can attack a face-up situation from 16 to 18 feet, it's it's game over. And then that opens up passing windows. That opens up just so much more. And I think with Zion, you could see a lot of the same thing. I'd be so interested to see what can happen if he can work in more like, what does it look like with him if he starts to like work in some pacing as a ball handler and trying to figure out some more stuff like that. And I, I mean, I would argue that he has – just nah, I, I don't know if I want to phrase it quite like that. Close to the same level of like court vision and ability to to move the ball as 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 Giannis does. Like obviously the the windows yeah. aren't quite the same because he's not seven feet tall, but like um, it, you just start talking about really interesting stuff with that. And I think that's stuff that legitimately could be in his future. Um, well, and and even like think about the way that like for instance dribble handoffs with Zion works, right? Like if you run a dribble handoff of Zion, the defender is going so far under on the wing. You know, if Zion's coming up from the left corner, from the right corner, going to his left, taking a dribble handoff from someone like a CJ McCollum or someone like a Brandon Ingram, right? That defender is going to slide way under, probably to like the 12 foot range, just to try and load up and be ready for when Zion tries to bully his way to the rim. Imagine if he took two dribbles real quick and jump stopped. And think about Zion's like jump stop ability, right? And again, like this comes back. It's a similar thing to what you're saying in terms of like, you know, slashing into the slot and cutting into the slot and then like driving that way. Like all of this stuff kind of plays a factor, right? Like if he could stop and pop from 16 feet, even in those circumstances, it really would like completely change the trajectory of his game. They, they would be like impossible to stop on offense if that was the case. Like, if you were able to run CJ McCollum and him in a essentially like dribble handoff slash like, you know, Zion is the four, CJ is the one, CJ setting the screen and then like picking and popping. And then like defenders not being able to go way under or like even switch that action. Imagine if, imagine if you couldn't switch that action even because Zion could just like shoot over the top of a defender, right? Like that's guarding CJ who's like six, seven. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. That would make things extremely difficult and interesting. Yeah. It, it's just kind of, it's kind of, it'd be kind of sick, wouldn't it? Like, I kind of need it in my sick. life. Yeah. No, I and, would and really like, look, to see that. 
here's the thing. Like, there there is a there's a history uh, of guys being able to develop this skill. Like Julius Randle, his first four years in the NBA when playing for the Lakers, he took something like let's see here, 144 threes in four years. Zion Williamson so far for the Pelicans in his three years has taken uh, 67 threes. So not far off in terms of volume, basically on a per game basis. And Julius Randle has developed into a guy that like is straight up like a three point shooter. Now, like you can say whether or not the results are as good as you want them to be, but you know, he's taking eight threes a game and is making them at 34% from the field, like, or making them at 34%. And he's been much better over the course of the last like little 25 game stretch. If he's that guy, if like if Zion Williamson becomes that guy, he's the best player in the league, probably, right? Yeah, yeah, I think. I mean, we're starting to talk about that stratosphere if he's there. Um, yeah, but like, even if he gets to a third of that, right? It'd be pretty enormous for him. Oh, definitely. So, uh, any, do you have anything else on this? This is this is an interesting concept to try and think through now. Uh, like th- that is a swing skill. Like that is. That swings title races if Zion Williamson can shoot. I don't have anything else to add on it. I think it's more just like uh, it's a very fun theoretical. And I, I do agree. Like, I think that's one that we could legitimately be talking about in two or three years. Um, and also just shout out to him again. Top 10 season in the NBA so far right now. It's been a little bit <laughs> muted because he's been out, but he's been, it's been ridiculous yeah. this year. And the Pels are still chugging along. They've been fantastic. Yeah, they're still, I believe, third in the West. They are just behind the Grizzlies and the uh, Nuggets, both of whom are absolutely terrific teams. If Zion Williamson keeps along this trajectory, he's going to be, you know, second team all NBA, probably, right? Yeah, I think so. So, okay, you're up. Your first uh, swing skill that could change things substantially for a team involved for players involved and by the way like yeah we kind of talked about the player involved there with zion like you know again if zion can shoot and pull up from 16 feet and shoot like a spot three that's the best player in the league i think yeah yeah no exactly so i mean we're talking about like i mean a team that's been top 10 in offense and defense for most of the year and you're talking about that being like legitimately that okay i think that's in getting pretty close to the best offense just on a whim like that um, yeah. so fun to think about, uh, for me, I went with Deandre Hunter in Atlanta. Um, and it's just more like latent skill. So like, okay, if he can, if his handle gets a little bit tighter, um, gets a little bit more shake to what he can do and he starts to see things a little bit quicker. So in other words, <laughs> if he could really play the three, um, I think that's what would open up for him because right now I think one of the biggest issues with their lineups is that he just, like there are a lot of guys who they can get the advantage for DeJounte and then they really aren't able to fully capitalize on it. Like there's a lot of ball holding, a lot of pausing. Um, and I think like I like DeAndre. I think I still am fine with the, the contract that he got. Part of that's because I just don't really care for contract talk. Um, but in looking at what he can do, I think that is what they are really hoping to see from him. There's always been the stretches and flashes. Like he's had some really nice stretches lately. Um, that have been promising. But again, I think seeing this become a consistent thing where he can routinely create off the dribble. And it's not even like, okay, let him isolate and create off the dribble. No, it's like, okay, can you catch and go? Just doing that stuff routinely. Can you keep the ball moving? I think that's stuff that 
feasibly he can get to on during this contract. And that would make a really big difference for this team because right now I think they can really, their offense can struggle at times when he's playing the three for them. Um, so that would be, especially when we're talking about a team that with John, uh, John Collins likely finally on the move this trade deadline um, and with some possibility to see just a little bit more of their wing heavy lineups, um, even with the starting lineup now, uh, I would be very interested to see that because that then you're talking about actually having more versatility throughout their their team because then you have a guy who can really play the three and the four instead of just being really only a positive on offense at, at the four right now um, and having the ability to be more of a two-way player through that would be really exciting to see. Well, everything with him seems to be more on his terms when he has it going on offense. You know what I mean? Like, it's a lot of that mid-post stuff that Nate McMillan loves to run. It's a lot of, you know, I'm going to try and drive. He He's like, he has the thing that Malcolm Brogdon used to do, where, like, he catches and pauses all the time, mm-hmm. as opposed to, like, just moving quickly and keeping the offense in flow and in rhythm and allowing them to keep the advantage. I think in part because, like, he has an advantage on guys for the most part. Like, he is six foot eight. He has a high release point. Like, I think that he tries to survey for what the best way for him to score is a lot of the time as opposed whenever he gets that advantage on that kick out and he has to pause to do it. And I think that that's what worries me a little bit about him, I guess. Like it's, it's almost like the process, the processing speed needs to go quicker. Yeah. Right. Like that's yeah. actually kind of what we're talking about. Right. Yeah, definitely. I think again, like I think it totally goes hand in hand too with like, okay, He's seeing things faster, but also you get more uh, like just if his handle is just better in general, I think you get more in terms of just margin for error with that. Um, but exactly. I think it's just doing everything a little bit quicker um, would really be pretty game changing for him as a player, honestly. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And like, how, here's here's like a good question. Like, how do we think this would change? the roster construction of the Hawks moving forward, because I think it actually would change things pretty substantially for them because it look, it seems like the John Collins thing is going to end at some point here. Maybe they get through the season, but look, I tend to think that when things go this far at some point in the next six months, at the very least, it'll reach its logical conclusion. Right. Uh, So let's say they do move John Collins. I do feel like because we also have a circumstance where they have AJ Griffin on this roster, who is a guy that has shown more flashes driving the basketball than what we saw at Duke, I think, Mm -hmm. but still has his own questions in terms of being able to consistently create from the three as like a secondary playmaker. How do you think that DeAndre being able to process, being able to be like an actual secondary playmaker would change the structure of the Hawks in general? Uh, That's a good question. I think, like, I mean, maybe in some ways you could put it as that opens up even more room to be willing to play AJ. Um, I think, like, obviously, like, I'd actually argue that AJ, in terms of what they need offensively at the three, he's been their best option in some ways. Like, you you obviously you have trade-offs with what is actually getting put out there. Um, But, like, in terms of a guy who can – like he doesn't even necessarily need plays run for him. He's capable of just like being a guy who can play off the ball and and be 
a function of the offense. Um, Cause I think that's the stuff DeAndre doesn't necessarily thrive at right now. Um, mm. So I think when you're talking about, okay, if you can have two guys who are doing stuff like that, especially with like part of what, uh, what's hard is in some ways, okay, do you, is this just boiling down to this being a trade problem? Is this boiling down to Nate's schemes? I think it's obviously both, you know, gauging what level of both. I can't do that. I'm not part of the organization. Um, but in just in terms of what they run now and how vanilla it is, and considering that they're pretty much just playing off of the advantages that Trey and DeJounte create, like having two guys who can capably keep an advantage going and create just a little bit like that, that's game changing. Cause especially right now, like exactly like I feel like so often you see like Atlanta can get a pretty good initial bend in the defense and then the play just kind of dies because of what they're the, the way that the teams are willing to guard their spacing um, and what they do when they actually have the ball in their hands. Yeah. It's really interesting. If you look at lineups with John Collins and DeAndre Hunter on the court without Trey Young, uh, the team has like a negative 15 net rating because the offense falls to like a 96 offensive rating. Yeah. Uh, basically just like completely falls off of a cliff. Uh, if you look at like, you know, Trey, Trey Young lineups with DeAndre Hunter, you know, they're very slightly positive. If you look at Trey Young lineups with just John Collins without DeAndre Hunter, they're negative, but not nearly as negative as they are when it's Collins and Hunter without Young. And I would imagine a lot of those Collins and Hunter without Young lineups include DeJounte Murray. Uh, and I could look that up if I really wanted to, but uh, just kind of watching the Hawks feels like they do play a decent amount of that. Um, yeah, it's interesting. Watching, trying to figure out how they build that team now with the limited assets they have due to the DeJounte Murray trade is a really, really intriguing concept to me. Uh, they're going to have to, like trying to figure out what they do with the John Collins deal and what they actually target for him is fascinating. Do they try and like rebalance the roster a little bit in terms of, do we go get a wing? Do we go get someone like Boyan Bogdanovich in a deal like that? Uh, or do we try and get someone who could be like a secondary playmaker or do we just go get like another four man? Like I saw a report that was like, yeah, the Hawks are looking for a spacing four man in a deal with John Collins. And I was like, wait now, John, John has made like 37% from three. I know he's in a slump this year, but like over the last three years, I think he's at like 37 from three. Are you going to do much better than that? If you trade like John Collins for a deal for a player like this. Um, so yeah, how they rebalance that lineup is big. And I actually think that the gamble that they have now taken on DeAndre Hunter with this contract, they are expecting him to take this leap. Like that, yeah. that is, that, that is the biggest thing. Like they desperately need him now to take this leap. They have hindered their flexibility in terms of assets. They've hindered their flexibility in terms of cap flexibility because of this contract. Like they need him to take this leap. Without that, they are in some real trouble here moving forward, I think. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, they very much need him to get back to where he was at two years ago before he got injured. I think it was the wrist injury. Um, but that 20 game stretch he had, yeah, like that's the stuff that you want to see again. Um, yeah. and part of that too was like he was just really hot shooting, but I think you saw a lot of the him getting into things quicker, him just being in a real rhythm, um, that we haven't really felt 
quite as much since then. And again, it's worth noting too, like he is still a fine NBA player. Like he does positive things that matter at a position that is hard to get players at um, who, who do things that are, are good enough to keep them on both ends of the court. But I think that for what they really need offensively, they do need a little bit more out of him. Yeah. Okay. Next up, let's take a quick commercial break. And then we're going to dive into the last four. Okay, Mark and I are back. My second swing skill that I I honestly think could like swing the title picture this year, if he would be able to do this, if John Morant could consistently hit a pull-up three behind a ball screen, and by consistently, I mean like if he could do it at like a 37% clip against like good defense, that I honestly think the Grizzlies would be like the favorite to win the title. Am I wrong? No, I don't think you are wrong um, because I think then you start talking about what do you do against them defensively? Um, yeah. Like I, cause I think a lot of the questions that we had in prior years about their offense have gone away a little bit. I'm still interested to see, and this is more so like just being speculative, not saying that there's stuff to poke holes in. Um, I do wonder what it's going to look like a little bit for some of their shooters in the playoffs. Cause we saw that happen obviously last year. Um, and the yep. year before, uh, particularly. Um, but I mean, again, like Jaws was hitting levels where even when you do go hard under screens the way that teams have been comfortable doing or, you know, really mixing up ball screen coverages, um, I still think that, ex- I mean, like exactly like you're hitting, if that pull up gets to a level where you have to go over, like, good luck, man. Like, like I don't know exactly what you're supposed to do against that. Um, and with the surrounding talent, like, I mean, Desmond Bain, him being back, he has been fantastic. So he hasn't been quite, you know, back to, you know, the, the all NBA levels that he was looking at like earlier in the year, but yep. this recent stretch, um, over like the last week or so, I think he scored 24 plus in, uh, three of the five games. He's really just looking, looking like himself again. So yeah. You get excited about what that can be. Uh, obviously, Dylan Brooks is going to be Dylan Brooks. Like, there's always going to be some streakiness there, but it's a guy you have to worry about to an extent. And confidence, a lot yeah. of confidence, Mark. There's not a lack of confidence, in Dylan. <laughs> uh, that is that goes without saying. Also, can I? As much as I, I have a quick gripe. Speaking of the Grizzlies, we got to stop talking it. about. Oh well, Jaron Jackson Jr. needs to stop fouling. Has the lowest foul rate of his career. He's gotten better at it. He's only fouled out once this season after fouling out, I think, seven or eight times last year. Of course, more games last year. I just don't know why we keep talking about it when it's clearly getting better. Yes, we can say that it's a concern in the future, in the playoffs, but like also noting he's notably improved at it this year. And point being, Dylan Brooks has a higher foul rate right now than Jaron Jackson Jr. So just had to get that out there because uh, I feel like I hear that every time anything is mentioned with Jaron. Um, yes. So here's, here's the thing with Jaron that I want to bring up real quick. Uh, Jaron also contests a crazy amount of shots. Like he's contesting seven shots in 26 minutes per game right now. And teams are shooting 43% at the rim when he's the primary. It's pretty good to me. Defender. Uh, that is like 
I don't think Rudy Gobert has ever had a number like that, even like in Rudy's prime. And I don't think that'll hold for Jaron. Like, I think that that's a bit unsustainable in terms of like luck, but any number under 50% is like elite of the elite of the elite. And Jaron Jackson is like well on his way to having a number under 50% while contesting so, so, so many shots while also reducing the foul rate. Yeah. I am. Look, I do think that some of the best players in the league in the playoffs will absolutely try to target that in order to get him off the court. And I think that it, it is to an extent a small concern in those circumstances, but he is undeniably improving at it and undeniably like it's not going to be a problem by the time he's 26. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I think my thing's just more like, I think it's a worthy footnote to have when talking about him. But like, if we're leading defensive player right. of the year discussions with like, oh, you know, that just come on, man. Do, like, you're on the internet more than I am. Like, you see, it's a problem. I should probably do it less. Um, yeah, yeah, you see the basketball conversation more than I do. Is there like an actual like debate for defensive player of the year right now? Uh, I think Brooke Lopez is still up there. Uh, probably just not. Probably just like I think he's been extremely good. Uh, right now, I think that there is still debate just because of how, uh, I mean, Jaron still only played about less than two thirds of the year. Um, but it's been pretty squarely cordoned off to Brooke, Bam and Jaron with Jaron pretty squarely in the lead. So like those are the only three that I think are in the conversation. Um, on a per minute basis, like there's no question that Jaron has been the best defender in the NBA. Yeah, I, like, I don't even really think it's all that close right mm-hmm. now. So, uh, all due respect to Bam, who I would have at number two, and I would have Brook Lopez number three. Like being the second best defender in the league is amazing and unbelievable, and I love the guy. And like he's taken a leap offensively this year. Like Bam Adebayo should be an all star. Like I'm. I am here for Bam Adebayo, and I'm not here slandering Bam Adebayo. Jaron Jackson. Sounds like you hate Bam Adebayo to me, actually. (laughs) Jaron Jackson this season is doing some, like, wild, wild shit on defense. He came back, and the Grizzlies went from, like, 15th to number one in defensive efficiency in, like, with a quickness. What? 20 games. Like, it was like. Like, that's that's pretty damn good. So, it's unbelievable. I'm excited. Uh, But to get back to my original point. So sorry, Morant, I had to derail us a moment there. <laughs> no, I'm here for it. Uh, so John Morant right now is shooting 47 and a half. He has a 47 and a half effective field goal percentage on pull up shots this season. That is like basically in the 30th percentile or so among the, I think there are like 48, 49 players that have taken at least, or they're averaging at least five points per game on pull ups. Do you know who's last, by the way? This is a concerning number for me and a bit strange. On pull-ups in the league? Uh, effective field goal percentage on pull-ups among players that are averaging at least five points per game off of pull-up jumpers. Uh, is it Giannis? Mm, it is not Giannis. Is Yeah, I don't know if Giannis is averaging that many points off of pull-ups for what it's worth. Okay, I thought it was close. Um he he'd probably be below this person, but yeah. I, I don't think he's taking as many. Yeah, um, I'm trying to think who it would be. Can I get like a hint? It is a guy that would like undeniably be All NBA this year. 
undeniable All NBA, and he's bricking like that. Yeah. Why am I losing? Is it De'Aaron Fox? It's no, wait, Jason. he's not undeniable All NBA. Sorry, uh, yeah. my bad. Forget I said that. No, no offense to De'Aaron Fox. Love De'Aaron Fox. He did cut out it's, a lot of the mid range that, that stuff this year, though. Um, yeah, it's Jason Tatum. It is. Wow. I knew. Look, I know he's. I know he's been on a cold streak as a pull-up shooter. I, I'm like pretty blown away that he's at a 40.9 effective field goal percentage as a pull-up shooter right now. That's pretty wild. Yeah, that's that gonna turn crazy. That's gonna like, that's that breaks a, my brain a little bit. Yeah, that's gonna turn. <laughs> like, there's no way he's gonna shoot 40.9 on pull-ups for the rest of the year. Effective field goal percentage. Yeah. Man, twenty-seven point. He's he's at like twenty-seven percent from three on pull-ups right now. Yeah, that's gonna change up. I'm excited that's gonna for change. that. <laughs> but John Morant again, uh, again forty-seven and a half effective field goal percentage. That's pretty solidly below average. And the big thing with him is he just doesn't take them. Right, like he's only taking three pull-up threes per game, and it's largely because he can get to the rim almost at will. But when teams in the playoffs really start to load up for you, I think when teams start to like actually try to take away what you're great at in a seven game series, they're going to make it harder on Ja. And if Ja had that counter, I think it would completely change. I honestly think the Grizzlies would at the very least win the West. If Ja Morant could hit that pull up jumper. Mm -hmm. And I think it'll come for him at some point. I don't think he has bad touch. Like I think that he showcases a lot of uh, potential for growth there. But, you know, we'll see what the team looks like in a couple of years as well. Like, uh, he he has every opportunity, I think, to, like, really improve that. And if he does, it's going to swing, like, the NBA title picture in a real level. Yeah. No, I agree, man. And I think that we're trending towards that happening. So, I'm excited. Yeah. 33% on pull-up threes this year for John Morant. If he could get that up to, like, 36, I think that would be big. And more importantly, just, like, be willing to take them, right? Like, don't take three of them per game. Like, if you could take, like, five or six of them per game, even if even if you're shooting 34% on them, taking five or six of them per game, I think the teams feel like you're a much bigger threat to do it mm-hmm. uh, at the end of the day and guard you just a little bit differently. Um, yeah, that's where, I'm, that's where I'm at on John Moran at this point. Yeah. No, I dig that take. Are you ready for mine? Because I have – Let's uh, do it. I have a different one. Um, so mine, part of this is born out of nostalgia from watching the 2017-18 Pacers and wishing that we could see him back to his his full form. But mine is, what if Victor Oladipo got his lift back? Because um, that has been the biggest issue for him. And I mean this fully just saying, like, I'm just thrilled that he's able to play basketball still. Like, that, I'll never yeah. forget watching that injury live. That was, like, the worst um, at – Seeing any injury live sucks, but that injury by far was like that was devastating shit. Um, you like I think for me, his uh his ability to get to the rim has still been there. I think his handle is never like his handle's been fine, but like I do think like there's just been he's always had like some weird like bobbling with the ball since he injured his knee. Um so point being, like if he just really kind of regained that which obviously I don't know if that's super reasonable, but like if that happened, 
I, again, getting to the rim is not a problem for him. It's the finishing there that I think has typically been a problem. Like he's shooting 43% at the rim this year right now. Um, it was higher last year, but that's, again, an eight-game stretch, so you got to take it with a grain of salt. Basically, since 2017-18, it's been quite a bit down. And I think, you know, even just looking at that, it's impacted his shot quite a bit too, especially on his mm. pull-up. Um, I just, like, not – and I think we're thinking more in terms of, like, this being reasonable. So, like, let's say that it gets – back to 90% of what it was instead of it being like around like 75 or 80% right now. Cause he has the burst, but like, okay, if that, some of that D cell comes back and some of the ability to really rise up off of one foot comes back. Um, then you're talking about him like being that legitimate secondary creator alongside Jimmy Butler. And like, obviously Tyler to an extent, like he's a different kind of creator, but like getting that guy who's really getting to the rim, who can create having, you're right. Love, yeah. Like, Tyler is a different kind of creator. Yeah. Oh, Jesus. Wow. What a, what a sentence of construction that was. Um, that's going to haunt me. But uh, I've been thinking a lot about Odd Future today. So that just, I guess that's uh, dreams become reality. But um, yeah, I like that would be very cool to see. Because I think like you always like, and again, well, noting like he does positive things on the court. The defense from him is still awesome. I love watching Victor play defense. Mm. Um, but I just think, Again, you're talking about a guy who's back to being like an incredibly impactful offensive player if he gets that lift back. Even just like it doesn't need to be, you know, what he was in Indiana. I don't think yeah. that's ever happening again, right? Like if he even just got that little bit back, it would it would really help. Like having another shot creator is what Miami like desperately needs right now. Someone who yeah. can space the floor or someone that can be like an actual shot creator. The, Kyle Lowry can't really separate anymore. Jimmy Butler, like, what have you thought of Jimmy's season? It's, I don't want to be too harsh. Like, it's been, like, you look at the numbers, and it's been very good. Like, I mean, just, yeah. like, looking, like, there's, like, no drop-off from, from what it was last year, um, which is pretty, fan- I mean, he had an incredible season last year. I thought he, you know, not quite the same season as 2021, um, but still very good. Um it hasn't hit the same for me. And maybe that's just a product of Miami's whole ecosystem right now. Like, yeah, I, he's felt a little bit more deferential this year. Um, I like not, it's not quite the same, but I do feel like he, he, I think that he could take more shots of the rim than he does. Like he will drive a lot and then kick the ball out. Um, which that's part of being a driver. Like you kick the ball out for open shots. But I think there are a lot of times where it's like, Dude, you have an open look at the rim. Like, yeah, it, it's I don't know. I and again, this is not meant to slander him. Like, I think he should be an all star this year. He's been really damn good, but it does feel weird. Like, I I'm kind of on on the same train as you. It's felt it's felt different this year than it did years prior. I wouldn't I wouldn't even say I think he's been like not good this or like below his standard this year. It, it just does feel it feels purposefully different. Almost, uh, more so than there's like I don't think there's been a skill drop off. Do you? No, not at all. I don't think that there's been an athleticism yeah. drop off. I don't think the skills dropped off. It just feels like kind of like you're saying. It feels like a little bit of a conservation type thing. Like he's not finishing as well at the rim this year. Well, noting like he was god tier finishing at the rim the last two years. Like 2021, 72 percent from zero to three feet. 21, 22, 70 percent. This year he's at 66 percent, which is still good. Um, yeah. but it does bring up a little bit like, huh, what's up there? Um, 
But I again, like I don't think that there's anything that I've seen that makes me go like, oh, I'm super worried about him. It just is. Uh, I've talked about this with our resident Heat friend, Kaya Duncan, or obviously just basketball friend in general. But like, it. Uh, he's like, you know, I don't really know how to put my finger on it. It just it it is a different season from Jimmy. It it also feels like he is. He's consciously almost like stopping before he gets all the way to the rim to take like five foot shots as opposed to like one or two foot shots. Right. And he's been better at them this year. Like I think he's shooting like 49% on shots between three and 10 feet this year. And I can't remember. I think it was like 42 last year, something like that. Yeah. Well, it wasn't like a good number. Um, but this year it's like a pretty, it's like a pretty awesome number that is a real differentiator for him. And yeah, it feels like he's making a conscious decision not to get all the way to the rim. And maybe he's doing it to like try and stop getting hit. But also like if you look at his field goal percentage, look like if you can make a, you know, six foot shot at the same level, you can make a one foot shot. It doesn't really matter. Uh, like he's shooting 51% from the field, which is better than what he shot the last two years. Right. And it's not like he has drastically increased or decreased his three point output. Right. Like he's sh- he takes two of them per game. It's been that way for the last four years. The entire time he's been in Miami, he's taken 2.1, 2.0, 2.0, 2.0, three pointers per game. So yeah, it's, it's weird. It's, does it, he still feels like the guy in Miami. Like Bam's numbers and like I think Bam is to me Bam yeah, is like the guy in Miami this year. I know, I know what you're saying and I think that like because of the defense overall Bam is probably a more I don't even know if I can go more impactful cuz Jimmy just gets so much more defensive attention. Yeah, I mean it's less even about impact. Like I mean Bam's just been way more aggressive this year. I actually yeah. like it legit like, and I, I hopefully he, he, it's he, so he, weird. Like, it's I so just, weird. It does legitimately feel like Bam has been more aggressive than Jimmy has been at times this year. Um, yeah. It I, again, like I don't have like just some stat that I can point to that makes it make sense, but just in watching this, how it feels. Um, but yeah. But he, well, like I, I would bet you, I would bet you Bam is taking more shots than Jimmy, right? Uh, yes. Here, I'll, 16. I'll pull Jimmy it up while we're 14. talking. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I agree with you. Like, it feels like when he drives, like when the two of them drive, like Bams feel more like intent on scoring almost. Mm-hmm. Like, and like, it, it's a, the Heat are weird. The Heat are just a very weird team that I think need that second option, really. Like, third, second primary, uh, well, third primary perimeter option behind yeah. Jimmy and Hero. Uh, yeah, like Kyle, I think, needs to be, I don't know if limited is the right word, but I think Kyle is just a little bit limited at this point. And, you know, there's a reason he's taking 10 shots and only shooting 33% from three right now. Uh, he's just not not quite what he's been recently. They, they need that Oladipo guy that you're talking about within the swing skill conversation to you know, maybe acquire him or maybe just hope Victor gets back to his level. It would really transform what they do, I think, in a lot of different ways. Yeah, no, without question. Um, yeah, man, the, the Jimmy thing is weird. He he is awesome. 
Like he he is so so good. And I we still did an can't X-Files figure out on it. Somebody hit up David Duchovny, see what can happen. <laughs> you ever it, yeah. Yes. yes. Okay. Yeah, I love X Files. Sorry, had to had to get um, that out there. No, I'm I'm here for it. Um, and like he also has like a three to one turnover ratio. Like the numbers for Jimmy like are arguably better than they were last year. Yeah, it's so weird. Um, and I can't put my finger on why he feels. 10% less impactful. He does also start slow. So like that could also be a thing. Like he, he does tend to like work his way into the season a little bit, I think for the most mm-hmm. part. Um, and as the season goes on, like it's very possible he's been better for sure. Uh, since he got back from that little, he missed like a chunk of like four or five games earlier in the season, like maybe early December sounds right. He's been better since then too. So yeah, like I, I agree with you. Like he should still be an all-star, right? Like that's, that's where we're at. Yeah, yeah, I'd be there. Yeah. Okay. Uh, my third one is going to be Evan Mobley being able to space the floor and shoot in any regard. I think it would open up his game, and I think it would open up the Cavs' offense so, so drastically uh, if he could really, really knock down shots. And, like, for me, this is – Let's just start with catch and shoots, right? Like if he could hit pull-ups, like, holy shit, like he might be a top 10 player in the league at some point, but let's just start with catch and shoots. Like if Evan Mobley could knock down a corner three consistently, if he could knock down a wing three consistently, where when Darius Garland and Donovan Mitchell are running ball screens with Jared Allen and you have Jared Allen diving to the rim and you have an actual option to kick out to that is Evan Mobley, he becomes immediately the best third, fourth option in the league, I think. Right. Yeah. No, I like what you're saying. I think what's, uh, what's hard. Maybe not the best. Sorry. That, well, that might be, he'd at least be, if you're counting him as the fourth option, he's definitely the best fourth option. Well, yeah. When you third consider option, what defensive impact and stuff yeah. is too. Yeah. I get what you're saying. I yeah. think, I mean, it's tough. Cause like right now he's very much in the state of like his best offensive skills is passing. Um, And it gets a little bit muted sometimes being the four. Like I think when he and Jared are playing together, you see some really positive things. Um, And like their big to big passing is always a blast. But I think part of the difficulty is with what their wing situation is. It's not that he's the only non-spacer out there. It's like, okay, well we have to push you in the corner and then we have somebody in the slot who's not a shooter either. So you're just going to get totally sagged off of and people aren't going to worry about it. That's what makes it hard. Um, I think they've done a lot of really fun stuff to watch from like a scheme perspective of they try and be very intentional about, you know, getting him or, or Jared on the move if they're out in the corners or like just doing stuff to try and not have to have them spaced up at all. But it happens every game. Like yeah. there's going to be moments where that happens. Um, it, it's, and what I was leading into too, like it's just tough with noting him, noting uh, Scotty Barnes in the way that, it's easy to like be like, oh, well, I want this guy to be an all-star now when they have such high flashes of what they did in their their freshman campaign. Because like I can look at it and be like, okay, well, Scotty, his passing like the last 10, 15 games has hit another level. Really good. Been really, really exceptional good. to watch. Um, yep. And obviously it's been a little bit like Toronto's still losing. Well, I mean, they've been playing a lot better recently, but they're still just where they're at in the standings. I think that's been a little bit lost in the sauce. Um, well, and another thing on why I think it's been so good is that that offense generally, I think, has more movement now. They've been using him a bit more as a screener recently. 
and then hitting him with pocket passes and letting him like get downhill before he gets the ball and then be able to make processing reads on the fly. And, you know, the, the offense actually is movement now because they're using Scotty more as the screener, I think, which is really yeah. valuable. Yeah, I've really loved it. And then, I mean, just going off that with Evan, like, it's tough because I feel like I've seen a lot of consensus of like, oh, Evan's not having a good year. It's not as good as last year. And I think it's hard just because the expectations get brought up, you know. And that's not to say that people can't have opinions, but, like, he's meaningfully improved this year. It's just not quite as loud as I think people wanted. Like, the two-point percentage has improved drastically, and that's not just a stat thing. That's He's been a lot better finishing through contact. Um, yeah. it's still like, he still needs to get to a point where he doesn't always have to bring the ball down to go up with it, but he's gotten better with that on the roll this year. Um, just generally his finishing approach has been a lot stronger, um, in all facets. Um, that hasn't borne out in the jumper yet. Uh, I think I'm just glad that he's still trying it and doesn't seem like deterred by it at all. Um, yep. so there, there is good stuff there, but it's just with where the Cavs are right now, like it's hard to not look at it and be like, ah, oh, well, what if? Um, but exactly where you're at. Like, I think I very much believe in what his touch is and where it can get to. And I like, I think that we're heading towards that. And that's the exciting stuff because he is by and large, like, probably my favorite prospect in the league. Just watching him play basketball is just awesome to me. What, um, why is that? L- explain that before we move forward here. Uh, at least for me. Um, yeah. At, like, for where. For how I've been watching basketball, he is legitimately the best rookie defender I'd seen um, yeah. in watching basketball. And granted, I didn't start heavily watching basketball until 2017-18. But that's still, you're talking about a lot of freaking rookies who have come in. And playing yeah. at a position that normally takes quite a few years to really acclimate <laughs> as a defensive player. And then it's like bringing the passing too, because again, like you can look at the box score and be like, eh, it's 2.7 assists per game, can't be that much. But his playmaking vision and just actual feel for the game and where to be and how to how to how to make himself available like he's so good he's so sound and um yeah it's hard for me to not just love everything about watching that dude play basketball yeah i completely agree i think he's like just hyper intelligent uh the way he uses his length the way he uses his processing ability his you know it's it's one of those things i talked a little bit about this um on the podcast, I think with Schlecht, where I talked about like Josh Giddy having a fast brain, like Evan Mobley has a fast brain and has fast like limbs and quickness and speed and can get everywhere. And that's why he's everywhere. That's why he's everything everywhere all at once defensively. Right. Like it, it, it's really, 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 really impressive. Um, I think he's going to win a defensive player of the year at some point, like very, very confident on that. And look, the counting numbers were never going to go up this year. The team acquired fucking Donovan Mitchell. Like, Donovan Mitchell's going to take possessions. There was never going to be a circumstance where Evan Mobley's counting numbers, Evan Mobley was not going to average 20 points a game this year. They have Donovan Mitchell and Darius Garland dribbling the ball in the backcourt. They have Jared Allen in the front court, who was an all-star last year. Like, you don't just acquire a ball dominant shooting guard to play with your ball dominant point guard and then have your second year power forward see a drastic increase in his counting numbers. 
I, I saw, I saw what Ke- I think you're referring to Kendrick Perkins. Like I saw what Kendrick Perkins said in terms of like him being very disappointing. Oh, and, like, I don't even mean that. I think like having people taken that I actually back. do respect like, the sphere have said it. And like, I just don't agree. Um, yeah, no, it, it, like I, I get that the counting numbers are down, but his efficiency is way up. Uh, he is playing a critical role. He just hasn't taken the leap as a shooter. Like that's it. That's what it comes down to. Like you just, you would not expect the counting numbers to skyrocket when his usage is down because they acquired Donovan Mitchell to play with Darius Garland. Like, yeah, no, breaks my brain. It breaks my brain. Um, you know, that's just not the way basketball works. It just isn't. It is not. Yeah. Do you know how many basketballs are on the court at once, Mark? Uh, well, if you can count the ones that are uh, backup ones, at least 10. But no, yeah, it's one. Um, yeah, it's one. Court. You play with one basketball. Yeah, that's my that's my rant on uh, counting numbers right now. Not telling the tale with Evan Mobley. Okay. You're up with your final uh, your final one here. Right, real, real quick. I do think that that could shift. If Evan Mobley could knock down corner threes next year, I think that would really, really shift the Cavs into a totally different spectrum uh i assume at some point they're going to go out and get, they're going to get a spacing wing if you can then have mobley like knocking down corner threes like if he could take four of them per game and knock them down at 35 percent, where teams have to at least like consider the fact that he's out there completely revolutionizes the way that they play yeah uh completely opens up the court for garland and Mil- or mitchell completely opens up roles for jared allen to the rim that immediately goes from being like a middle of the pack offense to a top five offense, I think. So, okay, now we're good. Mark, you're up with your third one. Yeah, my final one is Michael Porter Jr. being able to get deeper dribble penetration. Um, so that's like yeah. however you want to call it. Like I think that would probably entail a little bit of his handle, you know, getting better. His handle has always been pretty weak, partially because of how high up he is. So it's it does get yeah. a little bit more flexible. This is probably the least realistic of my three somehow with even mentioning Victor. Um, but like, I, I mean, like I, I do think there have always been signs of like, maybe there's a little bit more there, especially like when we're talking about that stretch that Michael had before he got injured. Um, but I think yep. that's always going to be the question, unfortunately. Um, but I just think about it. It's not even like, I don't need him to start possessions for Denver. I just am thinking about, okay, what if you can envision him like, okay, we're, he gets to a point where he can take four or five dribbles and actually create something out of it instead of getting stonewalled, you know, 18 feet out. Like that stuff is really exciting to think about. Like imagine, okay, he gets a short close or something and he's able to, you know, just pull something off that ends up getting him to the rim or into the paint. And with his size and touch, like that's all you need. Um, This offense is already so dynamic. And I think when you envision – okay, what if Michael Porter Jr. were able to stay healthy and, and hit that next stride? That's really incur- – that's that's like – I mean, I was already hitting that point. Um, part of what was difficult is before he got injured, um, Jamal did, which that just sucked. Um, we, don't, we don't talk enough about how much the Denver Nuggets injuries suck. Um, but, like, I mean, when you have that stretch for Michael, seeing what he's doing – as this otherworldly movement shooter, just crazy shot maker playing off of the best passer yeah. in basketball. Like, and then you imagine that with, Oh, Hey, Jamal Murray's here too. And you get that trio. And then you are, you're obviously I'm not expecting Michael to average 30 points per game, but like 
he gets back to that point or he gets to a point where it's like, okay, I can, I can create a little bit. I can bring something off of this. Uh, you know, that's like, how do you guard that team? Like, can you imagine? Well, and, oh yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Well, like the other thing is like, imagine like him having more control over the ball, like his ball handler in general. Yeah. Like, I think that that would probably help his passing oh, as for well. Sure. Yeah. And like, he's a guy that, can be like a Stacey Patton level black hole of basketball. There's no way you know what I'm referring. I don't know who Stacey Patton is. I don't even know if you were old. I don't even know if you were born when the movie Eddie came out. Have you ever seen the movie Eddie with Whoopi Goldberg? I know that it exists, but I've never seen it. I've seen gifts from it. Um, That's all. That's a, that is a, that is an Eddie reference. God damn it. Mark, you're so, who does she take over? Does she take over the The New York Knicks? Oh, yeah. And then they use the actual players for it, right? Uh, not like the actual Knicks players, but there are NBA players and yeah, yeah, John Sally's in it. Yeah. Malik Rose, uh, Malik Sealy, not Malik Rose. Yeah. But yeah, no, that's, uh, it's a good one. It's a good one. You should watch it. Find, find it on your internet somewhere. Find time. Go buy it on DVD. It's probably like 45 cents, like in some discount bin. Dude, I don't even (laughs) know where I would watch a DVD right now. Um, <laughs> that's part of the problem. Do you have a play? Do you have a PlayStation? Oh, I do have a PlayStation. Never yeah, there you go. I've, I haven't bought a hard copy PlayStation game in like five years. I haven't bought a hard copy PlayStation game, but oh, Mark, you better believe I'm getting back into physical media. Bought some DVDs yesterday or two days ago. Got the third man finally. Got Escape from Alcatraz and got Death on an Isle. Not the new one. One Not the, the new 70s. one. That new one was good. I enjoyed the new one. It wasn't as good as Murder on the Orient Express, but it was still very good. Kenneth Branagh did a really good job with both. I'm all in on Emma Mackey. Like, uh, I think she is phenomenal. Did not yeah. think that that movie had like that movie had green screen problems. Yeah, uh, where it just seemed like like Murder on the Orient Express. Like it felt like you were more on a train. That movie felt like when they're on a boat, it felt like, oh, no, they're just like on a green screen somewhere. And this kind of looks like shit, I think, yeah. probably because of COVID, to be honest. But yeah, it was uh, that, that was that was frustrating, I thought. Regardless, uh, Michael Porter Jr. Yeah, I think like it would really help him to be able to have real control over the ball in terms of passing and in terms of like getting the ball to his teammates getting things in the flow of the offense a little bit more. Like, I think that would really help. Yeah. What, what else do you have on Michael Porter jr. Here? Uh, I don't have anything else to add on Michael. Um, I think that was it for me, man. We fell into an Eddie rabbit hole and a physical media rabbit hole. Like I, I, here's the thing. I actually do think the nuggets could use one more shot creator. Like, I think it would Mm -hmm. help them to have like, just, I know that, Nikola Jokic is unbelievable. I think it would help them to have someone who could like just get a shot over somebody. Jamal Murray's closing in on that. It's very possible that Jamal Murray becomes that guy again. Don't know if he's quite there yet. And I wonder if he's going to get there before the end of the season. Mike Porter Jr. is not going to, you know, become some unbelievable shot creator by the end of the year. But I think they do need one more guy that if teams just load up to stop Jokic and it's hard to load up to stop Jokic because he's obviously the best passer in the league. So like 
if you load up to stop him, you have to double him and he's just going to slice and dice you and find the open man. And when they have so much shooting on the court, they're almost an impossible problem to solve offensively. I wonder if they can run into like one guy who can at least slow down Jokic just enough one-on-one that it then becomes a situation where they need a guy who can just go get a shot. And I, I think Jamal can get there. I, I don't know that they have it yet. I'm not a hundred percent sure that they have it, which is a concern whenever you're a team that I think has legitimate, genuine title aspirations. Like this team can absolutely win an NBA title this year. Mm-hmm. No, I agree. So, uh, Mark, do you have anything else you got to get off your chest? Do you have any, uh, any, any strong, any strong basketball takes? I don't think I have any strong basketball takes right now. Um, I will say I just started rewatching Naruto again. Um, that's, that's what I do in my spare time. Uh, it's been lovely. Uh, you always forget what something is the first season until you turn it back on for mm-hmm. the first time. Cause I think I started watching it when I was like 10. Um, so to go back and do it is kind of interesting. Um, I've watched a lot recently. I think I'm trying. Oh to wow! Play. Okay, yeah. let's I'm see what we to, got. Let me pull up my Amazon really quick so I don't lose my mind on this. Uh, what have you watched recently? Uh, what have Laura and I watched recently? We watched a movie a couple nights ago called Nocebo, uh, which is by Lorcan Finnegan, who did Vivarium a couple years ago. Okay. Um, interesting movie just very on the nose i didn't quite enjoy it as much as i had hoped um looks stunning visually looks absolutely amazing visually but wasn't quite for me uh laura and i we oh i saw i did the since we've talked recently i've done the double feature of avatar and tar last week i double tarred (laughs) nice so uh yeah, both of those are amazing. You should see them both. You should see Avatar in a theater, and you should just watch Tar. Tar is okay. I feel confident. Here is my take on Tar. I've written a lot of words about it on Letterboxd already. I think it is basically a masterpiece, and yeah. based on what the pundits are currently saying at the Oscars, it seems like Tar is not going to win Best Picture. I think it's going to be that movie we look back in on in like five years and we just go, what in the entire fuck happened here? How did we miss this? Like, how did this not win Best Picture? This is the dumbest thing in the world that something else won Best Picture other than Tar. Okay. I have on my watch list. I just haven't gotten around to it yet. So that makes me want yeah. to uh, to get into it. Um, it is it's two and a half hours long. So like, be prepared. But that's it's, a long movie. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, okay. Well, I'm excited for that. I, I have it uh, again. It's on my watch list. Avatar. I'm not gonna have time to go out to the theater. I'm gonna see it eventually, but um, don't have theater time. I have. It's just been a lot of TV on my end. So I watched White Lotus season two last week. What'd um, you think? I liked it. It wasn't. I think it. It. I just don't know how you could recapture the first season. Um, mm-hmm. but I thought it was still very good. I enjoyed it. Um, I liked some of the directions it went. Uh, it was, I think that's one that I'll kind of want to rewatch again to get a better feeling for it. Uh, in some mm-hmm. ways, I feel like some of the, I was invested in every single storyline, but like, I think you get more pulled in 
to one direction by the end before um like I, the stuff with the two couples like really blows up the last like two episodes and i think it goes kind of fast like i i almost felt like it wrapped like an episode too soon in some ways um like yeah. it could have been drawn out a little bit more not even necessarily drawn out more but like the conclusion just felt like kind of sudden well i i think that like what they could have done was I think they didn't have like the best balance maybe cuz like the Albi character and like the three generations of Italian American family members uh and like the way that you know Italian American family members have changed throughout the years like a uh, you know it's pretty clearly commenting on you know intergenerational differences yeah it I was less engaged in that storyline I would say. Yeah. And I think they could have balanced it better. They could have probably put more time into the couples and a little bit less time into that. Yeah, I agree. Cause I think like there was the way that things were starting to go with Albia. I was like, this dude's going to turn into like a neo-Nazi by the end of the fucking season and (laughs) did not go that direction. Fortunately, cause that wouldn't have been very fun to watch. But like, as soon as like things started, as soon as it starts being like the, Oh, well I'm just a nice guy. I'm like, Oh no. Like that yeah. was yeah, and then yeah, that was that was fun. Um, but I mean, shout out to Jennifer Coolidge, man. She is awesome. Just the best. She's just awesome in this. Um, the absolute best. She had like I think that is what made the series for me. Like the last two to three episodes, uh, with her and everything starts to kind of unravel, and you're seeing obviously everything happen a million miles per second faster than she is because like that's her character. Um, and then just how she dies after uh after everything plays out is like mind numbingly stupid and it just fits. Um, so I loved that. Um, what else did I watch? Uh, cause I, there was something else that I watched. Oh yes. I'm trying on where, cause I know it was a, I'm trying to make sure that I pulled the right one. Um, Oh, I yeah. watched the, new, the last of us on, uh, and on the night it came out. I watched it right when it came out. Haven't watched so it yet. good. It's, okay, it? I won't. I won't spoil it. It's so good. Did you okay. play the games? No, no. Oh, you didn't play the games? Okay, no, you're not going to have spot with it. Uh, yeah, dude, that's tough because you. I mean, you like drama and you like horrors, so like, and I like video like, games. So it's just a blind oh. spot for me in terms of the video game. But yeah, oh, you need to. I would almost say that you need to before watching it. Um, you oh, there's no way I'm gonna have time. To do yeah, that. there's no okay. time to actually play it. <laughs> Uh yeah, uh, I, I have to go see Babylon and spend three hours in a movie theater at some point. Yeah. There's no way I'm gonna. Uh, three be hour movie is just like that's just hard for me, man. Um, yeah. The first time I ever saw a movie like close to that long was uh Peter um Peter Jackson's King Kong when I was like eight. Uh, um, yeah, that's that one is overly long. That one it's a, a drag. It's like yeah, you can cut out a half hour that easily. It was very cool, but yeah. Um, but no, I fully recommend Last of Us. It's. It, Pedro Pascal is okay. awesome in it. Um, Bella Ramsey is really good. Um, you're not going to get the same feeling without having played the game. Not to be like the you have to. No, of course, I think it's still worth watching for sure. But um, just for me, it was like in some ways because I was so attached to the game. Like when I was, you know, like kind of coming of age, like same age that yeah. you know the main character is supposed to be um, is when what, I was that, in the game growing when, up. When did that come out? Would that have been like? Ooh, let me look it up. I wonder if that's like, like Skyrim for me. I think it's a little bit um uh 
because it came out like right when the PS4, right before the PS4 came out. So it was on PS3. And then it was like the first big face scan game they did on PS4. Okay. Um, I th- it came out in 2013. Yeah. Yeah. So that would have been, yeah. So that's not, that's not too, too far off for us in terms of like, so like that, that game would be like what Skyrim probably was for me. I would imagine. Yeah. And like probably what like Red Dead Redemption is for people that are like four years younger than you. It's funny because I don't like I hate Red Dead Redemption. Um, it's very fun, but like it just uh, I don't I, I struggle with games like that sometimes. Like I love Fallout New Vegas. Fallout New Vegas is my game. I like that. Fallout is good. I've yeah, played Fallout a lot of Fallout. Good. I want a remastered Fallout New Vegas. That's all I want. I don't want them to make another <laughs> shitty knockoff fallout 76 type thing ever again please just remake fallout new vegas um but yeah i think that's actually it for me watching wise because that is a lot of tv but that's a lot of tv laura and i are watching the test right now which is on amazon i don't know if it's on amazon us and to watch this and understand and like get anything out of it you have to understand cricket uh which is something that i have immediately become a fan of here in australia it rules uh so back in like 2018, there was a big scandal where the Australian cricket team was like using sandpaper to sand down cricket balls and like get them to like move and do different stuff. So basically the Australian cricket team was cheating and their best player who like is the best player in the world got suspended for a year. And one of their other best players got suspended for I think like 18 months, maybe even. And then another guy got suspended. So they just like, um, it's about like the coach resigned and everything. So it's about like them coming out of that era and into a new era. And Laura and I are watching the first season now. And then the second season starts. Second season just came out. Um, And it's interesting because a lot has since come out about the head coach, not being a uh, particularly player friendly coach. And these um the first season which came out in 2020 you can like kind of see the cracks you you can see why he eventually became like as grating as he seemed to become according to media mm-hmm. reports um and we'll be interested to see the second season which i'm sure like dives into that because it, it, it literally dives into the fact that like the captain of the team like basically got removed from cricket Australia because he was like in a sex sexting scandal or something oh, like Jesus. that. Um, and like, you know, while he had like a small child at home and then the co- the coach like got removed basically. So yeah, it's a, it's an interesting, it's interesting because the documentary, which could have very much just been like a last dance or a redeem team thing where they it's very clearly just like an advertisement for the NBA and for basketball. It's not that like, I don't think that Justin Langer, the coach for Australia comes off as likable in any way, shape or form in this mm-hmm. thing. Like, I think he actually comes off kind of bad uh, within this documentary. Okay. So, well, I will see if I can get that because that does sound actually pretty interesting to me. Yeah. It's, it's a really, really interesting piece of like sports documentary. I think um, one one of the best sports documentaries I've seen in the last couple of years, I would say. Um, okay. Mark, tell the people where they can find your work. Tell the people what's going on in your life. 
Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at MG underscore Schindler. That's where I'm most active. I have all my stuff there. Um, I should have stuff coming soon. I'm working on a lot of bigger projects that are coming up down the road. So nothing that Love is like crazy immediate right now. I'm sure as more trades and WNBA free agency stuff happens with it starting up on the 21st, um, I will have plenty coming out on that. So yeah, be on the lookout. Love it. Uh, yeah, I have... The second part of the thing I wrote with Kelly Eco on the Rockets core and their younger players should be out today when this goes live. Uh, what else? What else? What else? What else? Uh, I have a piece coming with Seth Partnow and Danny LaRue that I'll be honest with you as of the time of this recording, I have no idea when this is going live. It could be next week. could be late this week. I'm not totally sure. Uh, it will be up though at some point in the next five days. Uh, other than that, uh, I'm also doing a, I think I'm doing like all transfer team mid season for college basketball at some point next week as well. So keep it locked to the athletic. I'm writing again, like I'm on it finally again. Um, in addition to doing draft guide stuff, I wrote the Grady Dick profile. I wrote Max Lewis and I wrote Brandon Miller this week. So I'm like locked in, ready to go. Uh, but yeah, that's where we're at until next time. We will talk soon. Thank you.